0: Week number one of the series was uh, my week to preach, so I preached out of Psalm 25, and that was one of my life verses, certainly my life verse in this season of life, where we talked about how God guides us, and it's not so much how God guides us as it is whom God guides. The question of Scripture is whom God guides. Last week, Pastor Chad talked about his life verse, that Christ in us, the hope of glory. And then I told you, as promised, in this series on week three, I would take the most common repeated life verse within this congregation and preach from that. Well, you guys made it hard because you you had some tiebreakers, all right? And so as I was going out there and looking at the board, uh, there were several passages that repeated, but quite honestly, a lot didn't repeat, which is unique. I think some of you were a little uptight because some of you put entire chapters and others of you put one verse and I said, well, I can be I can be blamed for that because I picked Psalm 25 to start the series, and that indeed is a chapter, but it's very difficult to pick just one single verse. If you got a Bible today, I want you to go with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. If you didn't receive a message card on your way in, can you raise your hand right quick? And one of the ushers would love to serve you. It is so good in the back left to see Alina. And I think I saw your husband, Yuri Monzo, all the way from Seattle, Washington. I passed Alina in college many, many years ago. Let's welcome them. Put your hands together. For them is, we welcome them. Awesome to have you guys with us today. Awesome. Welcome to those who are streaming live today. I saw just a few moments ago, there were several of you streaming live. And so we welcome you. We pray God's spirit speaks to you where you're at today. I want to talk today about an emotion. Matthew chapter six, this verse, verse 31 through 34 verses or stretch of text I want to talk about it. I want to elaborate I want to kind of break down today and let's have some conversation about this passage Matthew chapter 6 verse 33 was the most repeated verse within our congregation Matthew 6 and 33 I want to read 31 32 33 and 34 would you read with me Matthew chapter 6 verse uh, start certain start verse 31 so don't worry saying what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear notice what Jesus says in verse 32 For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Today, I want to talk to you about an emotion that we've all dealt with it's the emotion of anxiety. The emotion of anxiety. The emotion of worry. We posted a question on Instagram this week. I did it on Instagram Story. I did it on Instagram Timeline. I did it on Facebook Timeline. And I asked the question, what makes you anxious? Not what makes your mom anxious or someone you know, but what makes you anxious? I got some very interesting responses like this one. One was, looking at Instagram makes me anxious. I said, well, get off of it, you know, like... Get off of the platform, go to a different platform or or just ex altogether, right? Then there was the thought of you preaching a sermon on anxiety makes me anxious. I said, Mom, stop writing on my Facebook wall, right? No, it's not my mom. But many, many people responded. You asking us what makes us anxious makes me anxious. And I got that a lot. That was response. This one When uh, church is getting down to the last few minutes and it still sounds like you are on your your introduction. I think that might be from the media team back there (laughs) in the back. Some of the more serious responses, I want you to see some of the more serious responses. Money. Money was huge at the top of the list. Money, and it was normally this way. I don't think I'll have enough money to take care of my kids or enough money to take care of my aging parents. That's normally how it found itself. Being alone. Being alone was the number one reply that we received. Being alone, being isolated. The second one, or the third one, the future. Another one, being accepted by others. Being accepted, going to the doctor, because we know how all evil those places are, right? Going to the doctor was big. Whether I'm truly living out God's purpose for my life or not. Losing control, which is, by the way, a fallacy because you never had control in the first place. The whole control thing is total fallacy in this life. It's total fallacy, but losing control. The other one, being separated from my family. My family being disconnected. Being able to find the right spouse. Being able to have a child. Losing a spouse. Losing a child. Here's another one. Losing another child. Having lost two children or lost three children. Failing as a parent. Can I be honest with you? Just the number of responses that I received this week were overwhelming. And you say, what do you mean, Craig? For me, I ask a lot on Instagram. I ask a lot on Twitter. I ask a lot on Facebook. I'll do this occasionally, and I'll get three or four, maybe a dozen responses. I got so many responses on this question that I really, it took me a long time to actually write them all down. What makes you anxious? You you know why, right? Because anxiety is one of those problems that gives birth to all kinds of other problems in our lives. Anxiety is like a fire that spreads quickly through our whole house. If you can imagine it this way, think about how many other sins are connected to the root sin of anxiety. Think about it for a minute. Anxiety about money will cause you to hoard or steal. Anxiety about uh, succeeding will make you irritable and patient with people in your workplace. Anxiety about relationships will make you withdrawn or indifferent towards people that are around you. Anxiety about uh, about what other people think about you will make you lie. It'll make you stretch the truth in your middle school or your high school. If anxiety could be uh, conquered and overcome, just think about how mortal of a blow would be struck to so many other sins in our life. So Today, I want to speak to and hopefully make it our aim to take a mortal blow to anxiety in our lives. A mortal blow, not a a small hit that resuscitates the next week, but a mortal blow to the anxiety. So today, we're going to look at what Jesus says about worry. Now, let me just go ahead and forewarn you. This is one of the most profound and insight teachings Jesus ever gives. It's often overlooked and what's so amazing to me about it is it comes at the end of Matthew chapter 6, which is right in the middle of his most elongated sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was up there using the natural acoustics of the land and he began to speak to the crowds. Jesus will explain to us that anxiety is just an opportunity to trust God. Anxiety is a divine opportunity to lean heavily upon the Lord. This is, by the way, a favorite passage of mine, so it wasn't that hard in the sense of coming up and understanding maybe what is the heart and desire behind many people saying Matthew 6.33 is one of their favorite passages. Now, one quick caveat. Somebody says, Pastor Craig, you've got too many introductions, but I've got to give you this introduction, all right? This is one quick caveat. You need to hear me very clearly. When I put this on Instagram last night, I got a, a, a whole myriad of responses, and I want you to hear me. As with every emotion in life, there can be a lot going on when you experience anxiety. So you need to understand something. Our bodies, our souls are fully integrated. So what happens in the body can affect the soul, and what happens in the soul inevitably affects the other. For some of you, there are factors right now going on in your life with anxiety that have to do nothing with what's going on in your life personally, in the sense of what's happening emotionally. It could be because of your physiological makeup. It could be because of past traumatic experiences. In fact, at least 25% of you in this room are sex abuse victims. That's the latest stat. It's a little more than that for our churches in America. But 25% of you had sexual abuse in, li- in your life, trespass in some way. So we talk about traumatic experiences. I want you to know you have permission to live out the most difficult days of your life in the safety of this community. I I just got to give you that permission because we don't give that permission enough. You have permission to live out your horrible, horrible dark days right here in the midst of a safe community. You do. You have permission to do it. But understand and realize that I'm not going to, I'm going to be very careful to not collapse every anxiety problem into the spiritual bucket. For some of you, 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 today I personally in my message, and that's what I'm called to do as a pastor, to deal primarily with the spiritual root causes of anxiety. But some of you, there are other significant issues. And I'd encourage you to consult a physician. Consult another ministry that deals with these specific issues. I will go to the doctor tomorrow for a battle that I'm currently facing physiologically. Okay, So it is okay. It is okay for you to engage, all right? Please understand that. So I'm not collapsing all anxiety problems into the one spiritual bucket. But I want to read the passage in its entirety because it's such an important passage. So let's read it in its entirety. Start with me in verse 24 so we can get some context. Jesus in Matthew 6 said, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, you say, Craig, that's a pretty interesting start to a discussion on worry. That's interesting. Jesus starts his discussion on anxiety with a message about money, he starts his discussion on worry with statements about finances. It's a good question. Pin it, we'll come back to it. Verse. Next verse, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you eat or what you would drink, or about your body. What you will wear isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon. And Solomon, by the way, was stylish. Solomon was stylish. And he was very well clothed. Not even Solomon, all his splendor, was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here one day or here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you? You of little faith? So don't worry saying what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for the gentiles he's saying gentiles not like us non-jews he's talking about pagans those people separated from all religion you know people who don't know God at all you know you know UNC fans Georgia fans something like that you you get the idea right I'm just kidding I'm just kidding okay thankfully Jesus is consistent today, unlike Tennessee, okay, we can, we can wear out Kentucky and then we give it 50 to 17 by Missouri, that's okay, we beat Vandy, we're still in a bowl, all right, but I'm with you, I'm with you, all right, so, so these godless people, these pagans, these Gentiles, right, he says, even the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them, but here's the conclusion. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all of these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus primarily makes three points about anxiety. Everybody say three. Number one, anxiety thinks too little of God. Anxiety thinks too little of God. Anxiety, by its nature, minimizes the God of the gospel. This is the most profound counterintuitive point in the passage. Most of us, if I can uh, say this, we think of anxiety as an emotion that just naturally arises from the uncertainty of life. But Jesus says that's not the case. Jesus says anxiety is an emotion that is intimately connected to our deepest desires. What do you mean, Craig? We worry most about what we are devoted to most. We worry most about what we are devoted to most. You say, Craig, how can you prove that? Well, let me prove it just for a minute. If you want to see what you're most devoted to, what brings you the most anxiety when you think about it? If you want to see and understand what this season of life and its devotions are allegiant to, what is bringing you anxiety? Let let me prove it to you. I don't worry so much about your kids' grades. I don't. I care about your kids. I'm a pastor of this congregation. I hope your kids do very well, but you don't worry about my kids' grades. You never gave a thought this week about my kids' grades because you're not devoted to my kids, but I am devoted to my kids. We are only anxious about that which we are devoted about. For instance, if you come to me after church... I'm right now not worried and devoted about what your boss thinks about the assignment you turned in last week. If you come forward at the end of the gathering and say, would you pray with me? I'll pray with you, but I promise you, by the time I get to the wedding I'm doing this afternoon, I will give one more single thought about whether or not your project or assignment was great before your boss, because I'm not devoted to your project or assignment, but you are devoted to your project and assignment. So what I'm saying is that we only worry about what we're devoted to. We only become anxious about what we are committed Two, We worry about what we are most devoted to, which is why Jesus starts the discussion on anxiety with a challenge to what we are most devoted to. Isn't it amazing that if Jesus knows this, money becomes Jesus' number one illustration about anxiety. It was number two in the responses I got via social media. Money. The number one illustration Jesus gives of anxiety is money. Look at with me verse 25 again. Verse 25, he says, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life. Now, anytime you see a therefore in scripture, you have to ask what it's, what it's there for. Well, therefore is a connecting word. Anytime you see therefore, you've got to see what the therefore is pointing to. What's the therefore pointing to? You can't start a message on anxiety in verse 25 if 25 is saying therefore. And 25 is pointing back to verse 24. And 24 is what? No one can serve two masters for either hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Jesus knows that what we'll worry about most is connected to what we're devoted to most. So when it comes to talking about anxiety, he starts with the big one money he starts with money he starts with finances he says if you're devoted to money then that's all you'll worry about with your time if you think money is the one indispensable ingredient of the good life then you will worry about money all the time you'll worry about getting it you'll worry about keeping it you'll worry about not losing it you'll worry about holding on to it you think money determines whether or not you get everything else good you want then you will worry about money If you see money as indispensable to getting what you want in life, you will always think about money. You will be anxious about money. And then what's so amazing is our Lord then begins to ask a series of questions that challenge our devotion to money. He says, verse 25, isn't life more than food and isn't the body more than clothing? In other words, is money what really defines the good life? Is money what really defines a fruitful life? And he gives two illustrations to demonstrate that money is not the indispensable ingredient of the good life. First, he says, consider the birds. Look at verse 26. They don't sow. They don't reap. They don't gather into barns. They have no savings account at SunTrust. They have no 401K in which their employer matches. They do none of these things, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Birds don't spend too much time worrying about saving, Yet they never seem to lack any food because God takes care of them. Second, he says, is consider the wildflowers in the field. Look at verse 28. They don't labor. They don't spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, who is stylish, styling and profiling Solomon in all his splendor, was not adorned like one of these. Listen to me, church. Flowers don't spend much time worrying about looking pretty. Yet they they are beautiful. They are elegant because God adorns their lives. He makes them beautiful, yet they don't worry about looking beautiful. The point isn't, by the way, that we shouldn't save or that we should never use money to buy things that we want or to bless our family. It's just that we should never be devoted to money as the primary source of our security and beauty. We cannot afford to be devoted to money as if it is our security or as if it is our beauty. Because our Heavenly Father, he said, will take care of those things. So what's the conclusion, he said? Look at verse 33. Verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. In other words, be devoted to God, worry about pleasing God, worry about doing his will, focus primarily on obeying him and obeying him and pleasing him with your money. And he says God will take care of everything else, including your security and including your beauty. When I read this passage, I can't help but think of C.S. Lewis's great commentary on Matthew 6 and old Clive Staples Lewis, what he said. He said, in life, there is a first thing, and then there are second things. The first thing is God, seeking God, his kingdom, his righteousness. And then there are second things. Second things are everything else. It's kids, it's money, it's enjoy, it's family, it's vacation, it's connectivity, it's friendship, all of the second things. He says, you have to put first thing first, that's God, and then God takes care of all the second things. But catch this. If you put second things first, not only do you lose contact with the first thing God, but, 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 you, use, you lose the ability to enjoy any of the second things. He said if you come to a point in life where you take second things and make second things first thing, you lose contact with first thing and you lose your capacity and ability to enjoy any of the second things in life. When it comes to worrying about money, people fall into one of two personality types. Two personality types, which are addressed in Jesus's illustration. Find out which one you are. For some, money is their source of security. So their favorite thing to do is save it. Their favorite thing to do when they get a $1,000 bonus at Christmas, you know what they do? They put it in the bank. They save it. They think money helps them face their future. They believe that money is the number one indispensable quality for a future they desire. Money becomes their security. It becomes their insulation. It becomes insulatory in their lives. The second group is money is their beauty. Money is their significance and their joy. And so when they get an extra bonus, what do they do? You better bet your bottom dollar they aren't going to the bank. What are they doing? They're going to upgrade the car. They're going to upgrade the wardrobe. They're going to spend the money. It's time to upgrade the lifestyle. It's time to go on vacation. Welcome to Hotlanta where we vacation every four weeks. We go on vacation. It's our significance. It's our beauty. We do all that we can to escape. I wish people would build a life in Christ so obedient that they didn't feel like they had to vacation to escape what it is that God's asked to call them to do, right? That would be amazing. But, but understanding that we are we have two different types of groups of people. And what's so amazing, we have savers, we have spenders. And in God's sense of humor, savers and spenders always marry each other. <laughs> savers... Marry spenders. If spenders could marry spenders, we'd all be bankrupt, right? But savers marry spenders. And what do savers do? Here's, I'm not an expert in premarital counseling, but I've done a lot of it. And here's what I've learned in premarital counseling and marriage counseling. Is that both of them, savers and spenders, think that the other spouse has a problem with money. It's never their problem. So the savers thinks the spender's too irresponsible. And the spender thinks the saver's too upright. And what Jesus is saying is saver and spender are both wrong. They're both wrong. We're not finding any security in money. You're not to find any security whatsoever in your ability to save or your ability to spend. It's the same root problem, just in different directions. Both are devoted to money as necessary for some aspect of the good life. When Jesus addressed this issue through the birds' illustrations, he says the birds don't save and they're fine. So stop elbowing your spouse right now, okay? And he addresses the splendor and, 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 and of the, the wildflowers. And, and in doing so, he is, he's addressing the spenders. They don't spend any money on clothes, and yet they are still gorgeous. So he tells them both, devote yourself, uh, what? To God, not to money. He says, and let God be the primary source of your security and the primary source of your joy. Just like this, and just like understand, he takes the excellent care of the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. He will take care of you. He will clothe you. He will take care of you. Again, listen to me. He's not saying you shouldn't save for the future or buy nice things for yourself. Just that our primary devotion or our primary concern should be about pleasing God, about doing what God asks us to do. And then when we please God and we trust God with money, then what happens is we can trust him to worry about all the second things. Do you want God to worry about the second things for you? Do you want him to protect the outcome of your obedience to him in the first thing? He will take care of the second things. God will do it. God will do it. Now, there's one other caveat here. Some of you may be anxious about money because you have poor spending or poor, horrible money habits. And if so, you should attend one of our Financial Peace University issues that we take take place in our church that we'll put on the calendar again for next year because that is another type of anxiety. Another type. But for most of us and most of us in America, we have anxiety about money because we are devoted to it and we think it's the key to the good life. We think it's indispensable. So money's our first thing. Jesus says, make God your first thing. He'll add all those other things, security, joy, all the other things into your life. Again, there's first things and second things. If you make the first thing the first thing, God will take care of second things. If you make the second thing the first thing, you'll lose contact with the first thing and use your ability to enjoy any of the second things. You can apply this life principle, of course, to other areas than money. Money's just the big one for us. Jesus knew it's why he said it. Let Let me apply it to parenting about your parenting do the birds of the field worry about their parenting they just kind of push their kids out of the nest and say fly and their and their kids turn out all right their kids turn out actually okay because God makes sure that what they will learn what they need to learn through your parenting and even through your lack of parenting do you trust more in your ability to parent or the grace of God to raise your kid no, 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 no Craig, oh. just like with money, that wouldn't mean we don't need to put time and energy into parenting, just like money. Just that we should not be anxious about parenting. Not be uptight about parenting. We should be primarily devoted to God and let him worry about our parenting. Let him worry about our kids. See, when I seek to obey God in my parenting, the promise is he will take responsibility and make things work out in my children. He will. He will. Do you follow Jesus' thought pattern here? You see what Jesus is doing when it comes to money, parenting, marriage, education, career, any of the other litany of things we worry about? God is not telling us. God is not saying to us and telling us to sit back and do nothing. He's saying that we need to do what we know to do in obedience to God. Have I done what I know to do to the best of my ability? And then I trust him with the results and I don't stress about those results. So listen, if you're in here today, we shouldn't stress out about, did I handle that conversation exactly right with the boss to get the the raise that I need? Did I say everything I was supposed to say to that coworker? Did I touch that person in that way and and, and, and with significance? Do I engage in that? Did I make the right decision? What are other people really thinking about me? What did that, did that person respond in the way that I thought they should? We do our best and we trust God with the results. Oh, am I putting myself in the right places that I would be married, that I would find a spouse? No, we we do what we know to do and we trust God with the results. We trust God with the results. Anxiety thinks too little about God because it elevates obtaining other things besides Him as the most essential element of the good life. Listen to me, the good life is more than making a lot of money. It's more than good career choices. It's more than successful parenting techniques. It's more, in, in more than finding the right person to be married to. Or as Jesus said, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. A man's life is not made by the abundance of what he owns. The good life is walking with God and letting God provide all those things. That's the good life, which leads to the second observation. Jesus said, anxiety minimizes how much God thinks of me. Anxiety minimizes how much God thinks of me. How much he believes in me and he tells us to consider how well God takes care of the birds he says aren't you worth more than they verse 26 aren't you worth more than they and after talking about it how about how beautiful God made the flowers Jesus says verse 30 if that's how God clothes the grass of the field and the grass is here one day and gone the next I mean grass is grass people walk on the grass People trample on the grass. We put slipping and slides on the grass and destroy it for the sake of fun with our kids. You know, that's what I tell parents all the time. Don't get all in a tensy about kids hitting the walls and messing up your grass. We're not raising grass here. We're raising kids. We're not raising walls here. We're raising kids. And he says, isn't, isn't life if God takes care of the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, won't he do much more for you? You of little faith. This, by the way, in scripture, is what we call an argument from the lesser to the greater. An argument from the lesser to the greater. He's saying if God is the kind of God who even cared in creation about the safety of the birds and the beauty of the flowers, don't you think that he cares about you? that's what he's saying he, this passage dis, dis, displays for us the character of our heavenly father isn't it obvious from creation when we look around that we serve a blessing prospering type of God a good good father who loves to bless us and prosper us if he takes care of the grass won't he take care of you you are the best of his creation you are the apex of his creation catch this you exist today because God wanted one of you he wanted one of you that's why you're here. You're the apex of his creation. You're the best of his creation. He takes care of grass. He'll take care of you. That's the argument from the lesser to the greater. If he cares for birds and begonias, surely he cares for you. It's a good line right there, isn't it? it took a lot of thought. He cares for birds and begonias. Surely he cares about you and one of the other gospels where jesus he teaches something similar he argues from the greater to the lesser so we've seen him argue from lesser to greater now he's going to argue from greater to lesser he says in luke luke chapter 12 verse 32 do not be afraid little flock for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom he's been pleased how pleased was he to give us the kingdom pleased enough to send jesus to the cross Your father was pleased enough to give you his own kingdom to the level that he said, I'm going to send my son to the cross. If God loved you enough to give Jesus for you, do you think he's going to neglect your day-to-day needs? (laughs) Do you realize now, I'm hoping it's hitting you like it's hitting me, how insulting it is to God when we don't think that he'll take care of minute details when he gave his son for us. Will he not also give us all things? Charles Spurgeon, who's one of my favorite preachers, suffered greatly with anxiety most of his life, most of his ministry in deep depression. And, and he writes a lot about it. And he writes, and Charles Spurgeon writes, Listen to the voice of the Lord speak. I will help you. It's a small thing for me, your God, to help you. Consider what I've already done. What? Not help you? I bought you with my blood. Not what? Not help you? I died for you. Since I've done the greater, will I not do the lesser things for you? That's the argument from greater to lesser. That God will be faithful even with the lesser things. According to the Bible, church, it should be so obvious. It's beyond question. Can I give you two verses that I hope not only you know, but you'll memorize? Can I give you two verses to memorize? These you need to memorize. You hear them a lot in my preaching because I've memorized them. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 16. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast? And have no compassion on the child she's born? Like what mom in the history of the world has ever had a baby latched to her Breast and then forget about the baby. Physical impossibility. Impossibility. Well, and what's so amazing is is like with our kids, my wife, she has like this whole another sense of in-tuneness, right? Like with our first one, Knox, I would sleep, you know, in the middle of the night, I'd wake up in the morning and be like, babe, man, that wasn't that awesome? Knox slept through the whole night. She's like, he did not sleep through the whole night. <laughs> Like he's been up for hours, you know? I'm like, are you serious? You know, like she has this in-tune feeling with like the other room, like she can, she can feel. But, but here's what's so amazing. Jesus, the scripture knows that. So he says, okay, maybe you're in here and you had the worst mom in the world. She forgot you while you were on the breast. All right, I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. Though she may forget, I will not forget, God says. I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. What Isaiah didn't know is he was prophesying 750 years earlier. He was actually prophesying what was literally true because God looks at his hands and we are on his hands. Right between the radius and ulna, he has a hole there. We are on his hands. It's not our names. It's the scars in his Wrist that are engraved in his hands. And you say, well, he's not that way anymore. He has a resurrected body. What did he choose to keep after his resurrection? Holes in his arms. You're in his hands. Jesus forever making an intercession with you on his hands. With you on his hands. You're engraved in his hands. Wow. Another scripture I want to give to you, Romans eight thirty two He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? What more would God have to do to prove his commitment to you? Can I just be honest with you real quick? This bothers me with my own kids sometimes. It reminds me of my kids on vacation, right? We surprised them this last fall. I took them to Great Wolf Lodge down in... Uh, LaGrange. LaGrange, Georgia. I didn't tell them where we were going. They loved it. They're still talk about it. They want to go back this winter where it's consistently 84 degrees inside and the water park's always open. And they want to go back this winter, but they loved it. And in Great Wolf Lodge, which we planned for them, we are, we're one day after spending the whole day in the water park, we're about 30 minutes after dinner time or when we normally eat dinner. And my kids say, dad, are we not going to eat? Are we not going to eat? And I look at them and I'm thinking like, okay, isn't it proof enough that if I surprise you, put you in the car, take care of all your clothing, or at least your mom does, get in the car, drive, the two hours, pull in, take care of all your needs, give you paw passes, give you wolf ears, take you to a water park, stand in line to ride some slide. It wasn't for me, brother. 30 minutes so we can go down this slide together. Don't you think I'm going to take care of your food needs? Like, I'm not going to starve you to death. I didn't take you away from our house to starve you to death. Surely, if God has cared enough to send his own son to the cross to die in humiliation for us, surely you can trust him with your light bill. Surely you can trust him with your mortgage. Surely, it's like looking, God, are you going to let me not eat? He died for you. He was crucified for you. He was resurrected for you. Surely he can take care of your future spouse. Surely. Surely he can connect you with the right person at the right time in the right season. Surely. If God who gave his son for us, will he not also give us all things? Church, what greater insult could we ever say to Jesus that after his resurrection, we say God is probably not trustworthy or God probably doesn't care about us. He's trustworthy. There will come a time in your life, and I'm speaking it to myself, some of the older seasoned saints in here, you can tell the younger saints, there will come a time in your life where you will be walking through this life and you will look back over your shoulder at all of the waters that tried to drown you and all of the waves that tried to overtake you and all the fire that tried to burn you. And all the lying tongues that tried to condemn you. And you're going to look back and know without one single ounce of doubt how you survived. God will be faithful to you, friends. God will be faithful to you. God is trustworthy. He's trustworthy. What greater insult? What greater insult? See, some of us in this room, can I just be real blunt? Anxiety, speaking of spiritual reasons for the Christian, is completely irrational. It, 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 it believes that God can take you to heaven, but he can't handle you on earth. That God is good for eternity, but he's insufficient for time. That he delivered you from damnation and hell, but he won't deliver you from the details of your day-to-day life. Anxiety, spiritually speaking, is completely irrational. Completely You got to choose. You either believe in the God of the gospel or you don't believe in the God of the gospel. Which is why he brings up the comparison to verse 32. He says, it's the Gentiles who worry about all these things. You know what Gentiles are? They're atheists. Not Gentiles like us, non-Jews, but Gentiles like pagans. What is he saying? He said, you're acting like an atheist, he tells them or at best one of those pagans who thinks that God is a capricious Viking, a glorified thug whose good side you have to got to stay on lest he smites you. The God is not that kind of God. He, by contrast, is a heavenly father. Our God is a heavenly daddy who cares about you and cares about you and your kids more than you care about you and your kids and would no sooner neglect you than you would neglect one of your own kids. He would never do it. So stop acting like an atheist, Jesus says. Stop acting like it." It's impossible, church, to really believe in the God of the gospel and be anxious, at least for spiritual reasons. For spiritual reasons. This leads me to where Paul says the same thing. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. This one finds itself multiple times on the... DP My Life verse, boy, he said, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God In the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, would guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Look at that, church. Look at it. Leave it up. It helps me to reflect on the fact that I am commanded to not be anxious. It's not a suggestion in my life. Oh, that's not a command. Command's like, don't have sex with your girlfriend. Command's like... Don't do something wrong. Don't abuse substances. Don't lie to your parents. No, this is actually a command too. He says, don't be anxious for anything. Not just in this verse, but four times in our text in Matthew today, Jesus commands us not to worry. Get this. Get this. Do you know what the most repeated command in the whole Bible is? The most whole Bible. Fear not. Not be fruitful. Not don't hang out with sinners. Don't, Don't lie. Fear not. You know how many times it shows up? 366 times. That's not a coincidence, folks, because every single day there is a new fear not command for you, including leap year. You will never wake up another day where God is not saying to you, fear not. Don't fear. Don't be afraid. It helps me to reflect on that fact that God is commanding. Listen, the only way the command makes sense is if God is promising he will take care of the things we're worried about, right? Look, look, look let, me play, let me play logic with you real quick. What does God tell us to do? Be anxious about nothing. Listen, if we're headed to lunch together, you're in my car, and I say, I say, well, we're going to go to lunch, and you say, oh, man, I forgot my wallet. Ah, dude, I ain't got no money. And I say, oh, don't worry about it. Okay. Then we get onto the restaurant. We pull in. We eat, you get you a nice meal. The meal comes, and and I say, oh, that's awkward. You don't have any money. You don't have a wallet. That's real awkward. I, I guess you'll have to stay and do the dishes now. And you look at me and you say, well, uh, uh, didn't you, you told me not to worry about it? Oh, when I said don't worry about it, I just meant I wasn't gonna. I didn't mean I was gonna pay for it. I just wanted you to kind of have a sense of peace and tranquility while you ate your food. I just wanted you to kind of feel peaceful while you were eating your meal. That would be a cruel joke. The only way it makes sense for God to tell us don't be anxious is because he's already guaranteed to take care of the things that you're anxious about. Or else he would be cruel. If he tells you don't be anxious, it's because he's got what you're anxious about. Man, that's a whole lot better than you're looking at me right now. That's a whole lot better. It would be a cruel nature of a cruel God who would tell you not to worry and then let what you're worrying about happen. Not take care of what you're worrying about. Not take care of what anxiety is in your hearts. So instead of being anxious, he said, in everything by prayer and supplication. Everybody say, with thanksgiving. That's this week, isn't it? With thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. The key words there are with thanksgiving. Say it with me with thanksgiving. So what does he say? He give thanks as you pray that God has got it. Listen to me, can I give you a truth? This helped me this week. It is impossible to thank God for an answer if you're still worried about it. So listen, that's clear. If you're not thanking God for it, it's because you're still worrying about it. Okay, you can't thank God for something you're still worried about. You hold on to it because you are still worried about it. Like, I'm going to get it. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to make it happen. I don't know about you. Can I just tell you about my experience? This is called Training Wheels in Prayer with Pastor Craig. I used to have a really bad problem praying. And the reason I had a big problem praying is I guess out of the sense of duty, not really trusting God as I was praying. So my prayer time became like anxiety hour with Jesus. So I'd go before Jesus and I'd give him all my anxieties, all the things that I worry about, but then here's what I would do. I'd get up from prayer and I'd still worry about him. So, one of my pastor friends calls it, um, he calls it uh, worrying in the direction of the ceiling. Because it's not prayer, because it's not what God's talking about here. Worry in the direction of the ceiling. So, I get before the Lord, I have anxiety, I wear Jesus. I tell him everything I'm worried about, and then I stand up. And I still worry about those things. That's not the kind of prayer Paul is talking about. What's he saying? He's saying, lay your problems at the feet of Jesus, leave him with the burden of them, and you thank him for the answer he has promised to give. And he said that type of anxiety hour will then lead to peace that passes all understanding. That's the type of peace. Now, let me give you practical ways, two ways I train myself to get through this. Here's the way I train myself to pray. First of all, I developed the habit of what Paul is doing here. He says, let your request be known with thanksgiving. Here's what you gotta do. It means you have to out loud with your lips. You've got to begin to thank God whatever you're worried about. It is impossible to say thanks if you're not trusting him to answer. So what you gotta do is when you're praying, you gotta get alone, get in your closet, close the door and use your lips and start thanking God for the answer. Okay? Okay. You've got to thank God. You've got to open up your mouth and give God thanks for the thing that you're worried about. Number two, he he may not always, by the way, answer in the exact way I want him to answer, but the passage gives me assurance that he will indeed answer, right? He's good all the time. I trust you. And here's, here's the second thing I do. I then, with my own lips, I did it last night again. I say, God, I trust you with this. It helps me to say it out loud. So I take whatever it is I'm anxious, worried about. I trust you with this. I know you're good all the time, God. So I lay my worries at your feet. Uh, just a few weeks ago, I read an article by um, a psychology magazine. So it wasn't even Christian. But they were on to something. They, they talked about the strategies for anxiety and they talked about coping. And this the psychologist or psychiatrist has invented what they call the 15-minute strategy. And he says, you have all these things you worry about all day. He says, you take the things that you worry about and you keep punting them. So if you've scheduled 4.45 to 5 o'clock is my worry, my 15 minutes of anxiety. Here's what you do. You keep punting it to 4.45. Comes up at 11.15, punt it to 4.45. 12.30, punt it to 4.45. And then at 4.45, you just start worrying. Worry about everything at once. Hit everything that you need to worry about, that you need to think about, be anxious about. And the end of the 15 minutes, you finish. And then you stop. And I thought, you know what? what they're saying is 15 minutes of worrying is actually what Jesus has invented called prayer. That we are to go to God and cry out to God and say, God, I trust you with this. God, I give you thanksgiving that you're gonna take care of this. I cast these burdens on you and I thank you, Lord, for answering them. And then I move on. I thought about it this week. Some of you in a hard, hard season of trusting God with anxiety, can I tell you our Lord knows exactly that anxiety and more. He went to the garden of Gethsemane where all of mankind's sin was about to be laid on him. And he said, Father, let this cup pass from me lest not my will be done but yours. And the thought hit me. The first Adam had three conditions. He was in an ideal garden. He had lots of food. He had love and companionship from a wife. The second Adam had a desert wilderness no food for 40 days isolation and loneliness despite every benefit adam had of ideal garden lots of food isolation and loneliness adam sinned in the middle of paradise Despite unimaginable woes, Jesus was alone in the desert with no food and lonely. He was victorious in the wasteland. And because he is victorious in life's hardest anxieties, he lives in you and you will be most victorious in life's most difficult anxieties. Listen to me, you listen to me, listen to me. The first Adam, he said, don't blame me, blame my wife. The second Adam said, don't blame my wife, the church, but blame me, Blame me. I'll take the penalty. I'll go to the cross. I'll die on a cross for your sin, for your anxiety, for your lack of trust. That's our God. That's the God of the gospel church. Here's the third thing Jesus makes about worry in Matthew chapter six anxiety is a false prophet. Anxiety is a false prophet. You know why it's a false prophet? Because it offers false solutions. It makes false promises, and it offers false predictions. That's what anxiety does. Worrying about stuff, I don't know about you, but it always makes me feel a little bit better. Does it make you feel a little bit better? It's like if I'm going to be anxious, I might as well worry about it because I'm devoting some time to it. And what worry then does is it it tricks us. It begins to make us think that if I devote energy to anxiety, it's going to help the situation. Because the situation is not going to be helped if I don't think about it. So I'm going to devote some energy to it. I'm going to devote some mind, mental energy to it, so I'm going to think about it. Well, Jesus points out two problems of that, okay? Two main problems to the fact that we think devoting energy to worry will actually make it better. Number one, worrying doesn't actually change anything. It doesn't change anything. What do you mean, Craig? Verse 27, can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? Worry will actually add to your life. No, ironically it won't. If anything, it will just shorten it. You know what doctors say? Doctors point out, I read it this week, 75% of every doctor visit is stress or anxiety related in America. Stress or anxiety, like 75%. You know Charles Mayo, the famed Mayo Clinic? We always talk about like they hold the deal, right? Here's what Charles Mayo said. He said, worry affects the circulation. Worry affects the heart, the glands, the whole nervous system. He said, though I've never known a man who died of overwork, I've known many men who died of worry. I've never known a man who died of overwork, but I've known many a man who died of worry. I saw a bumper sticker just a few weeks ago and it said, anxiety is my daily cardio. And I'm like, well, yeah, it is, but it ain't helpful. Okay, you ain't losing weight. Well, maybe you lose some weight, but it ain't helpful because your heart's about to pop out of your chest, right? You're racing. It may be daily cardio, but it ain't helpful daily cardio. It is a false prophet. Everybody say false prophet. It promises that if you devote time to it, it will change things. That's a lie. It's a lie. Second, Jesus says anxiety is a false prophet because the vast majority of things we worry about never take place. The vast majority of things we worry about never take place. You worry about a thousand things that never take place. If you just took an inventory of what you worried about last year and put it on a notebook and see that it didn't happen this year, it would give you so much confidence. Because the majority of what we worry about doesn't happen. It's described as paying interest on a debt that you don't even owe. Or like hearing the threatening music in the soundtrack of your life when there's actually no danger. Doesn't that tick you off when you're anxious about things that you shouldn't be anxious about? And you're like, why am I anxious about what I'm anxious about? Right, I told. I've I've watched a movie before. You watch one of these, you know, scary movies, and they're in the peaceful scene by the lake, and all of a sudden, this ominous music starts. I told my wife before, I wish. I wish that was the soundtrack of my life. When some, when I was about to meet somebody who was going to be really bad for me, I talked, Hey, hey, what's your name? Hey, my name is Savannah. And I would, Yo, okay, cool, awesome. I'll keep you at arm's distance, right? Yeah. But some of you live that way. You live with the ominous soundtrack in your life and there's nothing to be scared about. And the majority of things that you worry about won't happen. They'll never happen. So Jesus addresses this in verse 34. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. I'm almost finished. Because each day will have trouble of its own. Can you go to that verse? Don't worry about tomorrow because each day will have trouble of its own. Uh, Craig, that's exactly what I was worried about. (laughs) I was worried about tomorrow having trouble. And you can't read that and not go look to commentaries because this don't make sense when you first read this. That's exactly what I'm worried about. I was worried about tomorrow having worries. Well, he says, don't worry about tomorrow because guess who will also be there Tomorrow. God, and listen to me, hear me, hear this preacher. God who gives you strength today will give you strength tomorrow. But listen to me, he won't deal with the 990 things that don't happen, but he will give you the strength to deal with the one or two that will happen. So if you stop worrying about the 999 things that won't happen, then you'll get the strength to have the ability to face the one or two who will happen. You know how how God dealt with this and taught the children of Israel this? He did through the wilderness experience. Some of you in the wilderness experience, this is what he taught them in the wilderness experience through the provision of manna. You remember the provision of manna in the wilderness? Every single day, what would happen? They were in the desert, so there's no food whatsoever. They would wake up every morning, so every morning they would wake up all over the ground with these little vitamin-packed Ritz crackers. I mean, vitamin-packed Ritz crackers, right? And they were called—it was called manna. Manna in Hebrew actually means "what is it?" What is it? We don't know what it is. Manna means "what is it?" And God taught the children of Israel that every morning you're going to wake up and trust me for daily bread. And of course, there were gluten-free options for some of you people out there, so there were gluten-free options too. You could pick up off the ground, and and so the vegans would get what they wanted in manna. The, the, the meat eater would get what he wants in manna. And then, what would happen? All of the children of Israel would do what we like to do. Whenever we want to make something our security, what we do, we think some days I might need to get a little bit more, right? So what I'm going to do, I'm going to get a little more because there's going to be some lean time. So I'm going to get a little bit more. I'm going to go take it in my tent. You know what God would do every night? They took more into their tent. It would breed worms and worms. And every animal of the entire desert would come into those tents and destroy the food of the person who tried to reserve bread for tomorrow. God doesn't want any mold on your bread. He don't want you living off of yesterday's bread or the week before bread, or the month before his bread, or the years before bread. He wants you to live on his daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread, he said. So God taught them very early on. Listen, I don't know what it is you're going to face tomorrow, but I have enough what is it's for anything you're going to face tomorrow. What is it is manna. I don't know what it is you're going to face tomorrow, but what is it will be there for you. God says, I'm going to teach you this principle. It's manna. What is it? Manna. It's Man, in fact, there was only one day they couldn't do this. This was on the, the morning before the Sabbath. They could, God miraculously miraculous, let them keep them in the tent. And that night it would not rot because they were not to work on the Sabbath. The way most of us deal with worry is we stockpile enough so that we can become invulnerable tomorrow. Invulnerable. Can I tell you something? Look, you guys know I'm a science nerd. I'm not a young earth creationist. Not beating people up who are. I just don't believe the world The earth has existed 6,000 years. I believe the earth is about 4.5 billion years. And in that four point, if that is true, 4.5 billion years, listen to me. If we translate the entire life of earth into a 24-hour day, humans have existed for three seconds. And you've existed for the last millisecond of the 1,000th of a second. So that's humbling and it lets me settle into the deep, patient process of God's timing. You've been dealing with something two months. It's not even a one thousandth of one millionth of a millisecond. Trust. Peace. God's patient. His process is faithful and he will bring you through. Now, why can't we insulate ourselves for two reasons? I close. Would you come, whoever's playing keys today? For number one, you can't fully prepare yourself for tomorrow. So you'll always be worried about it if you have enough or someone how you will lose it. Some of you in here say, what if I get robbed? What if I lose my job? What if my 401k crashes? What if I'm falsely accused at work? What if, what if, what if my kids want nothing to do with me? What if my wife or me gets cancer? What if one individual does this? What if I never get married? You can never prepare for all the contingencies. So he says, don't try to stockpile. Number two, not only is it foolish, it's unnecessary. You know why it's unnecessary? Because the God who's faithful to you today promises to be as present with you tomorrow as he is today. And he's gonna be there tomorrow to deal with the anxieties you don't even know about yet. He's gonna be there to deal with the worry you don't even know about yet. He's like, hey, you're worried about X, Y, Z tomorrow, but none of that's gonna happen. Actually, DEF is gonna happen, and that's much worse. But don't worry, because I'm A through Z. (laughs) Some of you are worried about E-E-E-F-G and God says that's actually not going to happen to tomorrow, E-F-G, but M-N-O-P is going to. And M-N-O-P is a lot worse than E-F-G, but don't worry because I'm A through Z. I'm Alpha and Omega, I'm beginning and end. I don't care what letter you are currently facing, Jesus is the whole alphabet. Doesn't matter what we're currently facing. It's small and compared to our miracle working God whatever letter of suffering so look at me church tomorrow we'll have troubles I'm not trying to beat you up but look at your neighbor real quick and just say just shake your head like this and say something's going to go wrong this week just tell them something's going to go wrong this week something's going to go wrong now I'm not asking live you living with a placebo effect I'm not asking that's not a lack of faith but it's okay if something goes wrong why because God will be there God will be there. He's going to be faithful to you. And there is a way to face the uncertainty of tomorrow or next week without anxiety today. Why? Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. My life is worth living just because he lives. Anxiety causes you to worry about a thousand bad things that won't actually happen. And it keeps you from leaning in with joy and peace on the God who promises to give you strength for the one or two bad things that are actually happening to you. Charles Spurgeon, remember I told you about a minute ago? He said, anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows. It only empties today of its strength. Look at me, church. Breathe. What you're currently experiencing is only a chapter. It's not the whole book. It's not the whole story. It's not the whole story. Whatever tomorrow holds, God will be there to give me daily strength. Anxiety is a false prophet. Now, it's the most persuasive false prophet. Woo, it's good at public speaking. Such a rhetoric, rhetorician. You know what they did in the Old Testament? They stoned false prophets. You need stone anxiety every time it shows up in your life and turn your attention to the one true prophet, Jesus Christ, who never lies, who never fails, who always keeps his promise. His name is Jesus Christ. He was not just a prophet who told the truth. He was a prophet that took everything that we would have been afraid of to begin with and put it away on the cross and now tells us to trust him with everything else in our life. So what's the conclusion of the whole matter? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because I am the God of yesterday, today, and forever. Look, church. The- The God who saved you yesterday and delivered you today will surely provide for you tomorrow. He surely will. So the answer to a worry-free, trouble-free life is not a trouble-free life. It's an invulnerable, not an invulnerable future. It's a relationship with the God who controls time and promises you that not a hair from your head falls without his knowledge and permission. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, he'll never, no, never desert to his foes. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who to Jesus for refuge have fled. Fear not, for I am with thee, O, oh, be not dismayed, for I am thy God, and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. Pain is not your greatest enemy. And pleasure is not your greatest friend. But Jesus sticks closer than a brother. And God who makes birds secure and birds beautiful is devoted to you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.